welcome to a brand new day and a brand new episode of Disclosure, the latest radio offering from the good people at The Voice of Prophecy. My name, Sean Boonstra, the host of this program, and I'm sitting here in Loveland, Colorado, in our new studio. I'm sitting here with Jean Boonstra, my wife, and by far the more talented half of this marriage. (laughs) Jean, I think uh, today we've got a great program in store, don't we? You know, I'm really excited because we get to talk Bible and we get to talk history, two of my very favorite topics. You're the history major in the family, and... uh, and I know that as you were talking about what we'd be talking about today, you were lighting up like a firecracker. This is your yes. thing. You love history. And until I became a Christian, I hated history. I didn't yeah, see I the point. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. I, what, what's yeah. the point? They're all dead. You can't change what they said. You can't change what they did. But we are going to do history, and we have a special guest, don't we? we absolutely. Yeah. Today we have Bill Knott, the editor of the Avenist Review. It's a a good friend I've known now for about five, six years intimately. As a matter of fact, he's even been so liberal, so generous as to let me write an article or two for the Avenist Review. And I think we've got him on the phone from the Washington, D.C. area right now. Bill Knott, are you with us on the phone? Yes, I am. Glad to be with you. Hey, Bill, the Avenist Review, that's one of the oldest Christian periodicals in the nation, isn't it? Well, you become one of the oldest, and in fact, I think the latest data is that we are the oldest because others drop out over time, and so it's a kind of survival thing. Uh, (laughs) Adventist Review is founded in 1849, which gives us, I think this is 167 years of continuous publication. Just for the sake of the audience. In almost any field. Yeah, just for the sake of the audience, you have not been the editor since 1849. No, I I have not been. I, I came to this job much more recently, actually, in 2007. 1849. Oh, my goodness. That, that is long-lived. I don't know of anything else. Even the old National Geographics only go back to the beginning of the—and that's not a religious journal—only goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. 1849. Bill, one of the things I really appreciate about you is not only your commitment to really high-quality Christian journalism, but also your grasp of how religion and our day-to-day life here in, in what some people call postmodern American culture, how those things intersect and what were some of the things that led up to the world we live in today. And I know that when uh, you and I talked about coming here on the program, I said you can talk about anything you want to talk about, um, but I'm hoping. I'm hoping, because I was the history dunce in high school, that uh, our topic today will have something to do with religion and history. And I think I'm right, aren't I? In fact, uh, one of the areas that I particularly have been fascinated by uh, ever since I was a teenager growing up in New England and kind of saturated with the events that, uh, and that I ended up studying professionally is, is the history of religious awakenings in America. And that comes uh, not just once or twice, but those revivals, those awakenings have happened literally before there was a United States and continue right to the present moment. Okay, so we are going back in history. We're going prior to the establishment of America as an independent nation. And you're speaking of awakenings. Now, I've heard that. You know, I've heard references to a first great awakening and a second great awakening. When historians of religion, and American religion in particular, when they talk about an awakening, Bill, what are they talking about? They're referring to something more than a local church revival or the fact that for three months someone preached in a tent and had an amazing reaction on a local community. They're talking about something that is uh, more regional or, in some cases, national, where there's a generalized sense in the culture that many people, not necessarily a majority, but many people are moving toward religious renewal and religious faith who weren't previously inclined that way. And so 
it's really describing a social phenomenon that has been labeled awakening because most historians believe it can be dated with more or less precision to specific times and in some cases the leadership of specific people. So this this is something that had an impact on the culture as a whole. This was, you know, not localized. It actually becomes formative in the culture of a nation and uh, starts changing the direction that people in general go. The first Great Awakening, um, what was that? I mean, I've heard that a lot. I know that our listeners have heard that term a lot. When did that take place? What exactly was the Great First uh, Awakening, or the First Great Awakening, rather? You know, most people who study this and write about this identify events beginning in the 1730s in New England as the real launch of America's experience of the First Great Awakening. You have to say it that way, because the First Great Awakening isn't restricted only to the area now known as the United States. It actually affects all English-speaking regions, Scotland, Ireland, England, the English colonies on the American seaboard. All of them are involved in these events for a period of time beginning as early as 1735, in more limited scope, and growing for the next 10 to 15 years until it really became a social phenomenon that operated transatlantically. And they were very conscious of each other's revival experiences on opposite sides of the ocean. Bill, I find it fascinating, um, the history of the First Great Awakening in the U.S., because it was it was a formative time for our country as well. And as you described, this was a transatlantic um, movement. George Whitfield, of course, he was a British evangelist. Yeah. Um, sort of describe for us what he did and, and what his meetings were like when he did come to the colonies to share. Well, Whitfield is one of those characters, that uh, towering figure in, in any time. Were he living in our century, I suspect he would be a very well-known evangelist today, because he had a personal quality, and some call it a charisma, which absolutely connected with individuals, persons not necessarily with rank and education, but more typically people who thought of themselves as common, average people. They found in Whitfield someone who spoke the language of heart religion. Mm -hmm. And that worked just as successfully in Britain, where he spoke to 30,000 people at a time and groups of 10,000 in the fields and in mines. It worked just as successfully in Britain as it did in the United States, where he traveled extensively on about seven different transatlantic trips. He did preaching tours through the American colonies and drew enormous crowds of people, if today an evangelist were to preach and draw the kind of numbers that Whitfield regularly did with his preaching when he was in the American colonies, he would make the cover of every magazine and would be on the evening news regularly because of the great social impact of a man who spoke and was a riveting presence in the pulpit and in the fields, wherever he happened to be. Now, I understand that he really did have drawing power, didn't he? People made an effort to hear him? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the stories tell us, I mean, these are legitimated numbers. When he spoke on Boston Common in the 1730s, he drew more people to Boston Common than lived in the city of Boston. Hmm. 30,000 people gathered there in what was essentially a big field in the center of town then, and to hear this man preach on a platform. And by the way, they could all hear him with obviously no amplification. He had an amazing voice, and his impact was electric on audiences. 
he had been some training as a young man as an actor. And so he brought, apparently, <laughs> some of the theatrics of that experience and that training to his delivery, preaching to huge crowds. In fact, one famous Shakespearean actor, David Garrick, is supposed to have said that George Whitfield could get a crowd in tears by simply pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. Uh, now, I've, I've heard he had, yeah. he had an ability with language that everyone in his era considered phenomenal. He had a personal style that was dramatic. Hmm. And when he spoke, people sensed that somehow God was talking to their heart uniquely. Hmm. In fact, one individual has left us an account of what happened when he heard that uh, George Whitfield was coming near. This is literally a farmer in north central Connecticut who describes what happens when he hears that George Whitfield is nearby. He writes, On a sudden, in the morning, about 8 or 9 of the clock, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford and Wethersfield yesterday and is to preach at Middletown this morning at 10 of the clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool I had in my hand and ran home to tell my wife, telling her to make ready quickly to go hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middleton then ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late. Having my horse, my wife soon mounted the horse and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when my horse got much out of breath, I would get down and put my wife in the saddle and bid her to ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack. Well, he goes on and on telling about this enormous excitement as they're trying to get to the place where they hear Whitfield's going to preach. They get to the Connecticut River. And the river, which normally had the occasional boat crossing it, is covered with dozens of boats, people rushing, leaving their everyday occupations to rush off and hear this famous evangelist preach. I think everyone involved in public life would take notice of a man who had that kind of effect well, on a population. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to pretend, Bill. I know, I know what my wife is thinking. Well, that's kind of like when Sean preaches. I mean, the, ta- <laughs> the city shuts down. And, exactly and, what I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, I know. Everybody shows up to hear. But here's the thing that I kind of want to emphasize. I'm looking at the historical period. We're in the mid-18th century or the early mid-18th century. Right. And the assumption a lot of people have is that George Whitfield probably drew a crowd because America was so deeply religious 200 years ago. Actually, almost the opposite is true. After the initial period of colonial settlement, think the pilgrims arriving in 1620, the Puritan migration that happens from about 1630 to 1660, New England culture, which had started with this very strong religious background and orientation had grown increasingly, some would say moderate, others would say secular. And in fact, by the early 18th century, the secularity was much more pronounced. People who study attendance at colonial churches will tell you that by the 1720s and 30s, attendance had dropped quite low as a percentage of the population. Some maintain that by the 1770s, something like as few as 17% of the population was attending church. That was after the Great Awakening, but there was this enormous bubble that happened between about 1725 and the outbreak of the American Revolution, in which large numbers of people moved toward religious faith in a way that even secular historians document as a true social phenomenon. So there's a real reason that they're calling it an awakening. They've moved from, you know, what was 
almost a religious wasteland. 17% is low. And when I compare that to modern America, people are bemoaning the fact that we've moved into what they call the post-Christian phase of America. But I bet you church attendance, judging by the numbers I've seen recently, is at least double that that it was when Whitfield started preaching. I think we're in the mid-30-some percent still attend church in America. So while we may be in decline... The America of 200 years ago, Whitfield's America was distinctly more secular or at least more uninterested in religious matters before he began preaching than than modern America is today. Well, remember that part of that had to do with the way religious faith was organized in that era, particularly in New England and in most of the English-speaking colonies. In most of these colonies, there was a state religion, meaning the government and the religious establishment were interlocked in such a way that you were expected, if not required, to be part of the official faith of your given colony. And so people who have, we believe, God-given free will reacted against that restriction and that imposition of control by saying, well, if I can get away with not being part of that religious movement, I will. And increasingly, you watched people, while officially their names were on the rolls of churches, they dropped out of active attendance because they felt the burden of government and law pushing them towards something that really always should be voluntary. It says a lot about the nature of compulsory religion. It was an experiment that lasted more than 1,200 years in the Western world that ultimately failed. Uh, compulsory religion really never had the impact that a voluntary revival had. Listen, Bill, I want to push the pause button for a moment. You've brought up a number of issues, you know, state religion in the colonies. We've just touched on Whitfield, and there's so much more in that first great awakening, but we are up against a break. So we're going to do that. We're going to take a little break. I want you to pay attention to what you're about to hear, because there is a life-changing offer coming up right here in a moment. And as soon as that has come and gone, Gene and I will be back. We're sitting down with Bill Knott, the editor of the Avenist Review, a Christian publication that has been in publication since 1849. Don't go away. I will be right back with more from Bill Knott and Voice of Prophecy's Disclosure. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning, just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And welcome back from the break. This is Disclosure. 
a new radio broadcast from the good people at The Voice of Prophecy. I am your host, Sean Boonstra. I'm sitting in studio with my wife, Jean Boonstra, and today on the phone we've got Bill Knott, the editor of the Avenist Review, one of the oldest Christian periodicals in the nation, one of the longest running, and we've been talking about a phenomenon in American history, uh, the First and Second Great Awakenings. And just before we went to break, we discussed Whitfield and the fact that a rather secular America, the colonies, became enraptured with his preaching and would go out of their way to go and hear Whitfield preach, that it really was a phenomenon that helped change the direction of American culture. Now, Bill, another name that I know very well, one that I've heard many, many times, is the name Jonathan Edwards. I imagine he must have been a key figure in the First Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards is one of the products of that sort of Puritan tradition of the late uh, 17th century. He's born 1703 and, and, like many in his family, moved toward public ministry as his profession. As a young pastor in western Massachusetts, he becomes the pastor of the church in Northampton. It happened to be considered one of the most prominent pulpits in New England at the time, and Jonathan Edwards seems to be the spark that really begins an incredibly striking series of revivals that happen in Northampton and then more broadly in New England and then sweep down the northern half of the British colonies between about 17, beginning in 1734-35 and running up to about 1745. Edwards is a is a really intriguing figure. He's, by any stretch of the imagination, an incredibly bright intellectual. He's a man who's gifted in, in ancient languages. He's got a first-class education from Yale. He's a man who can hold his own with any philosopher at any time. Here he is, the pastor of a church, and the revival that gets sparked in Northampton, which is considered probably the launch of America's first Great Awakening, it happens when he preaches a series of sermons on justification by faith, on what it means for Jesus to carry the cost of our mistakes and our sins and for us to put our faith and trust in him for salvation. So in, that's in, what in, launches this great revival. In reference, this is about 200 years after the launch of the Protestant Reformation, and that concept, justification by faith, was sort of one of the bell ringers of the Protestant Reformation. And Jonathan Edwards is taking that same tradition into the American colonies, it sounds like. And now, however, he's preaching it to a group of people who are almost a hundred years after the Puritans have settled. Right. They have settled down. They've grown familiar with their parents and their grandparents' religion. And he's preaching a series of sermons that works in two different ways. One of them to attract people to faith, the goodness and the love of God. But then he also is aware that a number of people are not going to move in an attractional way. So he tries to motivate them by reminding them that if they don't respond to God, there are going to be consequences and even negative consequences. Well, unfortunately now, we for Edwards, he's... for that kind of preaching very much right. in our culture today, but it was a staple of these Great Awakenings. Now, unfortunately for Edwards, that is one of the things he's probably best remembered for. I mean, the, a lot of people who might know who Edwards is think of one particular sermon. If you're talking about not using an attractional method of preaching, um, that's sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's him, isn't it? Well, just to give you a little sample of the rhetoric that uh, he uses, just a, a passage from that sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you 
and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Well, it's hard to sit still when that's being preached at the front, though people who were there in the audience that day tell us that he didn't preach it in the fire and brimstone manner with railing fists and hollering oh, really? voice. He actually was quite quiet in his demeanor because he knew these words would shake anybody. Hmm. He was trying, as he might have said, to shake up sinners and to bring them to a fresh personal experience of relationship with Jesus Christ. We look at his methods and we say, is that really the God of Scripture speaking to us? And uh, Edwards, however, found that his preaching of both kinds, attractional and the kind that we now sometimes call fire and brimstone, they had the effect of, of getting people to think seriously about their lives, especially young people. The Northampton revivals of 1734 and 35 began with teenagers and young adults until pretty soon some 350 persons described themselves as revived. This was a major impact in that immediate community. It spread down through Connecticut, through what is now New Jersey, into parts of Pennsylvania, and pretty soon it was literally the talk of the town. Edwards and his influence, Whitfield and his travels, they were exciting the imagination of the American public uh, in ways that almost nothing did before the revolution. Mm -hmm. Would it be true, um, Bill, as you're describing the way Edwards preached, both that presenting the attractiveness of God and the consequences of not choosing him, both of those things would have created an emotional response in people, which was very different from the kind of preaching people had been accustomed to, which would have been a little more stale, probably something more intellectual that was read without a lot of emotion from behind the pulpit. So was he kind of bringing out the emotion in, in two different ways, but the same goal? You know, you've said it very well, Gene. Um, Edwards is known as one of those who began to use the power of the emotion of the ideas of the gospel in his preaching, much as his uh, colleague Whitfield was also doing in his touring up and down the colonies. And so people responded out loud to Edwards' preaching and to Whitfield. People cried. They groaned. Some people shrieked. There are reports some people went into ecstatic dancing because of what they are you discovered in freedom and release. And all of this is happening in pretty conservative state New England, and so it is it creates this great hubbub. What's happening in Northampton? What are these awakenings? What are these revivals? Edwards himself never endorsed the more dramatic manifestations where people uh, shouted and hollered, but he also said, Emotional response is another indicator of the work of the Spirit of God in someone's life. So he sort of tamped down the excesses, but he allowed that emotion was a valid part of religious experience. And that was very different than the tradition he had inherited or that Whitfield had inherited. Now, Bill, you know, another name, the Wesleys come into this period and so on, oh, but yeah. we've just got a few minutes left before sort of the bottom of the hour on, on our broadcast. Um, here's what I want to ask you. We, we've got Whitfield. People will turn out in droves to hear Whitfield. We've got Jonathan Edwards, who's creating excitement across the colonies with uh, a, an emotion-based and yet very intellectual style of preaching. 
what is there still of these movements today? I guess the I, I want to ask the question because did this just happen 200 years ago and fizzle out? Or are we seeing some of it left over today? Are there religious movements that were spawned by the First Great Awakening that I could still see to this day? Well, if you look around in American society, you can trace the development of religious faiths we today call Congregationalism, United Church of Christ, Presbyterianism. These all grow from the era of Whitfield and Edwards, and all of those movements have brought about many of the conditions that particularly set the table for the 19th century experience of religion in America. Those movements still exist as well-known churches, but they are, most of them are not characterized by the revivalistic preaching of Whitfield and Edwards. Well, that I, yeah, I haven't got seen, handed on to others. I haven't seen a lot of ecstatic dancing at the local Presbyterian church. and so <laughs> They aren't known for <laughs> no, that no. anymore, but that tradition moved on through influence of these revivals into other religious groups. A quick question, and it's not fair to do this quickly because we just have minutes left before this segment is over, Bill, but not only am I curious about what religious movements we might see today that were born out of the First Great Awakening, what I'm really looking at is the fact that this is happening in the decades leading up to the foundation of the United States itself, and I'm curious... You know, in, in a couple of minutes, which isn't fair to you, but in a couple of minutes, um, what impact did the Great Awakening have on the development of the United States itself? You know, many people who study this era point to the fact that as individuals began to think of their personal relationship to God, to ideas of faith, to salvation or to damnation, in the case of Edwards' right. sermon, it made individuals more intellectually involved in the ideas of their time. They read more. They studied more. The press was increasing as a social phenomenon. People wanted copies of printed material. Remember, Ben Franklin becomes a printer in this right. era. Yeah, that's and right. the press begins to grow. People were eager for printed material. Journals and newspapers begin to flourish in this era. This is all part of the sense that people got involved with ideas of faith, ideas of travel, experienced the world, and soon they began to hear and learn about philosophical ideas that laid the groundwork for the American ideals of independence, liberty, personal freedom, the pursuit of happiness. All of these come out of the cultural awakening that many people say began with the preaching of people like Edwards and Whitfield and Hopkins and others who set the table for the the more public and political and even secular era that followed in the American Revolutionary Era. Yeah, I, I one thing that I've kind of noticed is that there's a modern assumption that, you know, the American Constitution, and particularly some of the more secular liberties afforded by it, uh, were born out of a secularization, out of the Enlightenment more than the Reformation or the Great Awakenings. But, you know, as I've noticed, a number of authors, one recently at Harvard said, um, Really, that's a misnomer. Religion played a key role in the development of the American nation and the American Constitution in particular. And some of these preachers were, um, were involved in that, too. We're going to pick up again after a short break. Don't go away. I will be right back with more from Voice of Prophecy's Disclosure. Born under the cloud of illegitimacy, the unlikely king who ignited a global movement, the world forever changed. His name, Constantine. Shadow Empire, war, power, conspiracy, a battle for your mind, a warning for today. Shadow Empire, starting April 28th, 
Find a location near you. ShadowEmpire.com We are up against the bottom of the hour, and what that means is that in some markets, on some radio stations, we are about to sign off. You're going to hear the closing music and the end of another episode of Disclosure. Now, if you're one of the fortunate few who is listening to a radio station that carries the entire program, we're going to pick up again after a short break. Now, if uh, you don't have a radio station like that in your community, what you can do is go to VOP.com. That's for Voice of Prophecy. VOP.com. And uh, you can pick up the entire episode. The interview with Bill Knott, the editor of the Avenist Review. We're discussing the first and second Great Awakenings, the impact that they had on America, its birth, and the culture you live in today. co-host of Voice of Prophecy's Disclosure. You are joining us now for the second half of our program hosted by Sean Boonstra. And today we have with us our guest, Dr. Bill Knott. Now, if you missed the first part of our program, please join us at VOP.com where you can listen to it in its entirety. Well, now, Bill, he's a good friend, he's a theologian and a historian, and he is the editor of the Avenus Review. We've been enjoying our discussion today. We've been talking about the history of religious awakenings in America. It's a really fascinating time in U.S. history. Now, Bill, as we head into the second part of our program, I wanted to ask you, there's another name that is well-known and associated with these revivals in the time of the First Great Awakening, and that name, of course, is Wesley. Talk to us about Wesley and the role of Methodism in the Great Awakening. John Wesley is in many ways considered a figure who who is sort of a bridge between the great emotional and, and cultural experience of revival that we call the First Great Awakening and setting the stage for what would happen just a few years after his death at age 87 uh, in the early 19th century. Wesley is part of the First Great Awakening primarily in in Britain, where he preaches like Whitfield to tens of thousands of people at a time, he preaches in the fields. He preaches in at the, the open shafts of mines where miners come up after their evening shift, and he preaches in factories. He literally preaches from tombstones at times. Hmm. Because but really, standing on top of a tombstone. Hmm. His, believe it or not, his own father's tombstone uh, was a, a favorite place for him to preach to huge crowds that would gather in the churchyard. Wesley, like Whitfield, was a social phenomenon who spoke to everyday people. He wasn't just talking to the educated or political elites. He talked about heart religion. He mm-hmm. talked about the gospel in everyday terms. And he wasn't afraid to use the emotion inherent in those ideas to bring people to faith. Unlike people like, for instance, Jonathan Edwards and, to some degree, Whitfield, he didn't reach for the heavy hand of God's wrath as often in his preaching. He talked more about the love of Jesus and the attraction of the heart to Jesus, and people responded phenomenally, so much so that by the end of his life, he had more or less separated even from the Anglican Church, the Church of England, though he stayed a member to his death the movement he founded, Methodism, became the dominant Protestant movement of the 19th century in both Britain and the Americas, 
and really was the movement that drove so much of the energy and passion of what we call the Second Great Awakening. So is Methodism is born, Bill? How, what distinguishes it, you know, if you were to boil it down to some identifying characteristics, but what really distinguishes it from the Church of England? Methodism really takes as its heart a belief that each individual has a free will, that we can respond with our own choices to the offer God makes of salvation. Unlike Calvinistic faiths, which believe that God more or less determines the direction of our lives, Wesley and people in his tradition preached that we each have the opportunity to decide for or against faith. You can see why these ideas would dovetail very much with the experience of the American Revolution and the idea that we take personal responsibility, we make choices, we live with consequences, and that that experience made Methodism powerfully important in the era after the American Revolution uh, as it led into the late years of the 18th century, as it began really sweeping through the Americas Again, the time period wasn't overall that religious, but Methodism was gaining strongly among other Protestants. Now, would would Methodism, we're a little bit later in the game, 100 years or so, but would it sort of be identified as a dissenter religion by those who were the Church of England? They would have definitely seen it that way because it emphasized the emotive aspects of faith. It emphasized free will. Anglicanism wasn't yet sure where it was coming down on the freedom of the will. It emphasized uh, the idea that uh, your religious faith made a difference in your in your society. For instance, John Wesley is an ardent abolitionist, opposed oh, really? to slavery. Mm-hmm. And he and William Wilberforce and John Newton, uh, these are figures who knew each other well, banded together, because they say faith has consequences in society. If you believe in the freedom you have to make decisions about faith, How can you keep someone else in physical slavery and prevent them from believing and acting as their conscience dictates? So the the logic of their theology drove their public expression of faith and and morality. So is there a bit of a transition from the idea of uh, religion is sort of a a set of doctrinal affirmations to this ought to show up in your day to day life if you believe it, a a more practical religion? Oh, and in fact, by the time we reach the the, the outset of what is now described as the Second Great Awakening, beginning, most people would say, about 18.1 in Kentucky, that belief that your faith makes a difference in your society became a dominant expression in the Second Great Awakening, to some degree differentiating it from the one about 70 years earlier we call the First Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening had a huge social impact on America because people said, if I can make choices, then I'm responsible to make good choices. I'm responsible to help create a just society, a fair society, where people are treated equally, whether you're a Native American, an African American, an Irishman, an Italian, a German. Let's not leave out the Dutch. We left out the Dutch because Boonstra suggests that you might have been here earlier than others. But (laughs) the reality that, that these... The Second Great Awakening approached was the opportunity for people to make choices about their lives and to affect the shape of the society they lived in. And in some ways, using the best sense of the term, the Second Great Awakening had more 
we would call them political overtones. I don't mean partisan politics. I mean impact on society. So out of the Second Great Awakening come many, many different reform societies and movements. Some of them become so prominent that they're just a major part of the landscape between 1800 and 1850. Now, let me push the pause button for a moment, because we went right from the First Great Awakening into the Second Great Awakening, and and so it leaves me wondering, why do, why do we call the continuation the Second Great Awakening? But if I understand correctly, there was a historical pause between these things. Something happened yeah. that made a Second Awakening necessary. In fact, many people who study this look at the years from approximately 1760, think 15 years before the American Revolution, and the year 1801, that era when American democracy is fermenting and fomenting, it actually breaks out in armed conflict, there's the whole constitutional crisis, there's the involvement of other philosophical ideas, uniquely the influence of Western Europe, specifically France, on the young United States. This became a, a huge part of the national life, and it tended to tamp down the revivalism that had been part of the First Great Awakening. In right. fact, in some places, so much so that there was a strong reaction against the era of Thomas Jefferson and the so-called libertinism of French ideas, as, as many critics called it in, in the early 19th century. There was a sense that we've got to reclaim this country for its, its religious and faithful roots, by which they meant the era of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. But by 1801, in a series of revivals in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, there is something happening in the culture which pretty much in a sustained fashion lasts almost 50 years. All right, tell me about it. New England is sort of the birthplace of the First Great Awakening. You've just identified Kentucky, 1801. What takes place there? Uh, how's the Second Awakening different? You know, what is it? Remember that the, the American experience is, is an east-to-west movement. The culture is moving westward as the frontier opens up, and new lands are either taken from or bought from or somehow acquired from other people groups, other nations, to form what is today the American Midwest and ultimately the West. And as religion moves there, it tends to move in more revivalistic and emotional forms. Okay. Thus, you've got what we would call almost Pentecostal experiences that launched the Second Great Awakening in the early years of the 19th century. Okay, give me some names. The First Great Awakening, we've talked about Jonathan Edwards, we've talked about Wesley, we talked about Whitfield. Who do I place under the banner of Second Great Awakening? Some names that maybe I would recognize. A few of the major names would include Charles Grandison Finney, considered the, the greatest evangelist and preacher of the first half of the 19th century. He begins preaching in the 1820s and is primarily known for his work in upstate New York. Now, today we think of upstate New York as way east, particularly if you live in Loveland, Colorado. I yeah, think. that's right. <laughs> but, but actually, it was the edge of the American frontier in the 1820s. Uh, just a few years later, Ohio and Michigan become that edge. But the upstate New York was where cities were being built and people were rapidly moving and building new industries. The Erie Canal was being dug at this very era. Finney begins preaching across uh, upstate New York and has this enormous effect on this young, uh, eager, a hard-working population, they come out in the tens of thousands Amazing. to hear him. He's not particularly associated with any one denomination. He became the example of the revivalist who comes to town 
perhaps rents the biggest hall and has this amazing effect on the culture. He's Billy Sunday or Billy Graham. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's really the first in a series of great American evangelists that could go up to and include Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, and others you could point to today. Here's what I do know about Finney. Here's the one thing I can throw out that I know about Finney. He's the inventor of the modern altar call. Now, I'm a preacher and an evangelist. Yeah. But he, he actually put something down at the front of his auditorium called the anxious seat or the sinner's yeah. chair and <laughs> invited people to come down and consider making a decision in front of the room, if I remember it correctly. <laughs> well, in fact, Finney and others actually develop what today we would charitably call a series of techniques to help people come to faith in Christ. They wanted people to do that. They wanted people to know it was their free will that would lead them. But they also said, we can help you see the advantages of this. So they arranged their public halls. They arranged their experiences of revival meetings that would lead people to make what they thought of as good decisions. And the anxious seat, where someone considering committing their life to Christ could come down to the front, added social uh, affirmation to the decision they were making. Once they made their decision to follow Jesus Christ, they would be surrounded by dozens, maybe hundreds of others who had already made that decision, affirming them, welcoming them into the new community of Christ. And you can see what a powerful effect Absolutely. this would have on people who are in some cases isolated, not well-connected, maybe don't have a long heritage in this country. Finney spoke to those immigrant populations, to those mobile populations who really didn't have a lot of roots, and his impact was enormous. He was considered the best-known preacher of that era, spoke to more people than any other preacher in the first half of the 19th century. Yeah, it comes as a surprise to a lot of people that the altar call, you know, sort of was born in this period of time. There aren't any in the Bible, but the principle is, seems to be there that, you know, he's giving people an opportunity to respond to the clear emotions, say the Holy Spirit is speaking to the heart. I'm just affirming Finney now as an evangelist, but oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, the Holy Spirit speaks to the heart, and you've got to give people a way to respond, and sometimes a kinesthetic response, getting up out of your seat, raising your hand, mm-hmm. is just a way for somebody to exercise that free will and respond to that initial prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's Wesleyan theology. God starts, we respond. Now, we are up against a break. We are going to talk about about an exciting offer from the Voice of Prophecy. You don't want to miss this. This could help you deepen your relationship, help you respond to Jesus Christ in more meaningful ways. So I want you to listen to that. And in just a moment, we'll be back to wrap up our discussion about the Second Great Awakening and the impact that it has had on American culture and your life today. We'll be right back with Bill Knott, the editor of the Adventist Review, just after these announcements. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Answers to help you make sense of the chaos in today's world. And answers to help you make sense of the things that are happening right now in your own life. Well, maybe you're wondering, can God really forgive me? Guilt and shame can be terrible burdens to carry and can leave us wondering if God really can love us and accept us. Are you wondering if there really is a chance for true happiness in this life? Is there a secret to living a happy, contented life in a world of uncertainty? Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933, for your free Discover Bible Guides. 
Study online at our website, BibleStudies.com, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There's never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. At BibleStudies.com, you'll find answers and guides like Bridge to a Satisfying Life and The Secret of Happiness. Answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides as the major themes of the Bible come to life. Now, while you're online, be sure to visit us at VOP.com. At VOP.com, you'll find audio archives of this program, the latest ministry news, and resources to help you dig deeply into God's Word. And did you know that you can listen to this program from your smartphone or tablet? Just search for Voice of Prophecy in your favorite app store. Give us a call at 888-456-7933 or visit us online to begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today at BibleStudies.com. And we are back from the break. I hope you jotted down all that information because that really is a phenomenal offer. You're going to want to take advantage of it. Well, we are in segment four of today's program, Disclosure from the Voice of Prophecy. We're talking with Bill Knott, the editor of the Adventist Review, and we've been working our way through a lot of American history in an irresponsibly short amount of time. <laughs> uh, we've gone through the first Great Awakening. We've looked at great figures like Jonathan Edwards, Wesley, Whitfield, and we had just talked about Finney and the birth of the Second Great Awakening as American culture is moving westward over the mountains into the Ohio River Valley and, and onward from there. And, um, and so we had left off with Finney, and I wanted to ask you, Bill, sort of what were some of the key developments that happened in the wake of that, and where does America go next? What are some of the other movements we might want to identify? Well, many of the people attracted to Finney, by the way, who is another ardent abolitionist, again, mm-hmm. amazing, completely mm-hmm. anti-slavery, and uh, Finney and most of the revivalists of the era, again, opposed to that, that unique American institution of, of black slavery, which was the great critical issue of the first half of the 19th century. And they saw their faith as requiring that slavery be done away with. And so they, it attracts to the ideas of revival and the Second Great Awakening people who also have political and philosophical commitments to freedom and equality in the society. It is like many frontier faiths, it's moving forward on the assumption that we're all made of the same stuff, and God looks down on all of us the same. Right. And in fact, it is really reasserting the ideals of American liberty and independence that are enshrined in the Declaration yeah. of Independence and the Constitution. Uh, one of the characters who emerges in this same era has some unique ties to the, the faith group I belong to. Uh, a man by the name of William Miller is born in the 1780s in upstate New York, uh, actually lives right on the Vermont-New York line, and uh, owns a farm on one side and then the other over the years. But like many in his era, he's initially a somewhat secular person and is uh, attracted to the ideas of rationalism and what was called deism, the right. idea that God isn't really a personal being, he's sort of a force in the universe, and that we're mostly in charge of our own destiny. Many so. people would identify this as whatever they would call the religious faith of people like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. William Miller was very much in that mold. So it's kind of an absentee landlord. God might have gotten this place started, but now you're on your own. He's out there somewhere, but if I'm hearing it right, and there was a lot of that, as you pointed out, in uh, 18th century America. 
Miller is a, he has some remarkable turnings in his life that are really occasioned by some drama. As a young military officer during the War of 1812, he fights a battle against the invading British in Plattsburgh, New York, about maybe 120 miles north of his hometown. And he is amazed when a cannonball uh, shot at the American forces doesn't kill him. It comes so close, nothing explodes. And he believes that somehow maybe God or destiny or fate has saved him. That leads him on a spiritual journey. He begins to go to Scripture, begins to go to the Bible, and begins to say, maybe this does have some meaning for my life. He is in many ways a perfect symbol of what's happening to the culture at the same era. People are saying, wait a moment, maybe it isn't all about secular ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Maybe these ideas, in fact are biblical ideas, and I need to understand how God wants me to integrate my political ideas and my religious faith. It's amazing to me how many of these revivals are all Bible-based. It always seems to be the return to prayer or the Word of God. And he was, Miller, if I understand correctly, was really quite a Bible student after that point. Oh, Miller actually used some unique but very effective methods. He literally would begin reading a book of the Bible, and when he came to a word he didn't understand, he'd pull out a reference guide, research it, and then move forward. He was a very deliberate, methodical person in his Bible study, and over a period of time, he came to understand a way of looking particularly at the great time prophecies of the Bible in the books of Daniel and Revelation, and began to see things there that many of his contemporaries had alluded to but hadn't really gotten as far as he did. Mm -hmm. And that led him to what he's perhaps best known for today, his belief from studying the time prophecies, particularly the book of Daniel, that Christian believers might expect the end of the world, as he said it, about the year 1843. In fact, a friend called me last night to tell me that on the show Jeopardy, the quiz show Jeopardy, no kidding. a question came up last evening, who was William Miller and what was he known for? <laughs> and, and it took one of the contestants just before the buzzer, hit the button and said, preaching the apocalypse well that's kind of correct <laughs> well that's fact, pretty that's actually that's i'm impressed close. i mean because yeah. usually on on jeopardy the bible questions fall flat unfortunately well, mm-hmm. somehow this individual knew just enough to get the right answer and keep moving but miller isn't a major figure in the second great awakening in his own right but he sparks uh, a unique uh experience within the second great awakening which goes under the general term of second adventism okay inside yeah. the second great awakening there's this movement that comes to believe not only that jesus will one day return to the earth as all christians say they believe but that he will come sooner than many expect and according to the prophecies might come in their lifetime miller believed along with a large number of followers estimated to be as many as a hundred thousand persons on the eastern coast of the united states and out through the midwest who became what were called adventists believing in the literal second coming of jesus he would personally come and they thought about the year 1843 based on their readings of the prophecies of daniel well we know of course that they were wrong and miller came right out and said that ultimately but he in the process He sparked a resurgence of study in the Bible, intense focus on what the Bible said that was also one of the phenomenon associated with the Second Great Awakening. This wasn't just come in 
I think I feel this about God. You had to show me in your Bible if you thought or felt that about God. It was, you have to persuade me through the pages yeah. of Scripture. Miller was really good at that, and the movement that came out of William Miller's own preaching and teaching to this day uses those same values. Open the Bible and show me from the Bible. Absolutely. I've read some of William Miller's sermons, and they're not—I mean, it's not emotionalism. They're a, no. They are well-reasoned, I mean, astonishingly well-reasoned and thought out. And even though he may have come to the wrong conclusion, I always look at it this way— he came to the wrong conclusion for the right reasons because his exactly. his methodology was scriptural. It was biblical. And so he came to the wrong conclusion for all the right reasons. I see you ready to burst in with a historical <laughs> question. Go ahead. Well, um, of course, the, the role of the focus on the soon second coming of Jesus and the Great Awakening is very fascinating. Um, something else I find interesting, Bill, uh, that happened during the Second Awakening is that most of the converts were in fact women. Um, yeah. Now there, there are various that's theories. That's still true that, today. That's still true that's today. Still I'm true a preacher. Today. It's more women in the audience all the time. <laughs> you know, I think the second awakening was the beginning of that trend. It, that certainly has continued to today. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of theories about why that was true. Of course, this was a time in America where women's rights was, was part of the forefront. Um, right. Now there's one woman who was, whose life was influenced by the second great awakening and her name was Hannah Moore, not the English playwright by the same name, but a humble missionary woman. And Bill, I know you've spent a significant amount of time studying her life. Talk to us a bit about Hannah Moore. Well, that's not fair. You gave him five minutes. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. The short version is that I was fascinated when I discovered the life of this woman. Maybe I probably first came about an awareness of her life some 20 or 25 years ago. And as I began to piece together her story by collecting letters uh, from missionary archives at Yale and Harvard and Oberlin University, I began piecing together the story of her life. And I realized that her story rather perfectly illustrates both the experience of many women in the Second Great Awakening and their connection with the social causes that mm -hmm. came out of the Second Great Awakening. Many historians who study that era tend to study it in what I would call silos. Let's see, there was the temperance movement, there was the anti-slavery movement, there was the women's higher education movement. Mm -hmm. Hannah Moore is a figure who literally connects all of those dots in her own story, because if you were committed to personal reform, you were also committed to the reform of your society. You wanted right, other sure. people to experience freedom and joy and peace and and all of the things that you believed God was bringing into your life. As I worked on the story of her life, she moves, as my wife likes to say, she's sort of the Forrest Gump of the 19th century. <laughs> she, she connects all the great and famous people, though she isn't well-known herself. Among her correspondence, people she wrote to and got letters from regularly, are all of the major figures of the 19th century reform movements. She knew them all personally, though she herself has never been well-known. So she's kind of this figure who weaves in and out of the picture, but her letters, I've collected almost a hundred of them in my research, mm. give you this amazing story of someone whose life winds through working with Native Americans who got pushed out to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. She works in West Africa among the survivors of the Amistad mutiny. Wow. She works with tribal groups in West Africa. She's on the edge of experience as a missionary, a linguist, 
a Bible student. Here's a woman who had the entire New Testament memorized and major portions of the Old. That's unbelievable. She had a phenomenal memory, among other things. So if I'm listening correctly, this is not just a phenomenon. These awakenings are not just something that produce great social events and great meetings and emotional. These produced people of character who went on to make a difference. It generated American Christianity in many ways that has gone on to impact many parts of the world. Bill, we've just got moments left, but here's what I want to ask you. This is your area of, of study. Western Christianity. Does it stand in need of a third great awakening? There are people who believe it's already underway, at least in maybe its early stages. Others say the evidence isn't there. But when we ask ourselves, was God actually at work in these awakenings, it's difficult to argue with the testamentary evidence that we see in the writings of people like Edwards and Whitfield and many common people, uh, the farmer who reports how his heart is so deeply moved by the gospel that Whitfield preaches in, in the 18th century, and the many, many records we have that people came to genuine faith in God. The Spirit, we're told in Scripture, is always striving with us to bring us to a better understanding of God. And American Christianity, just like Christianity in other parts of the world, is always on the search to find what is God saying to us now about our experience. Authentic Christianity doesn't sit back and rest on the laurels of previous traditions or whatever the fathers or the grandfathers said. It says, What is God doing in our lives? What is he saying to us now? What is the meaning of Scripture for us now? And the characters we've described here all had that in common. The Bible speaks to us in our time. It makes an impact on our lives, and through our lives, it makes an impact on society. When we look around at the conditions in contemporary America and in Western Christianity, you could make a good case that we are much in need of that third great awakening. Whether it has already begun, as some say, or whether, in fact, it will yet happen, there is clearly a movement that God wants to bring about among people of faith, maybe across a range of Christian denominations, that brings them back to those central truths, the Bible, the importance of a relationship with Jesus Christ, personal faith, Caring for and loving your neighbor in the way that Jesus did. These are the dynamics that have been part of each of the Great Awakenings. It is time for more Great Awakenings. Bill Knott, editor of the Adventist Review, thank you for joining us on Disclosure. Thanks for taking time with us today. Uh, One thing I look forward to is the fact that the Bible guarantees there is another Great Awakening coming of sorts. Revelation 18.1 says that before Jesus comes, the earth is one more time illuminated with his glory. To all of those listening out there in Radio Land, thank you so much for joining us on the Voice of Prophecy's new program, Disclosure. We'll see you again very soon. 